that this morning I'm actually going to talk on something I know I haven't talked on before. Uh, and it's a topic that in, in many ways, uh, I don't know if I've avoided it, but I just, I know I haven't addressed it. And it's an important one. And it's one that comes out through scripture and it's one that's central really in what we should be affirming, saying that we believe and holding to. We've been in this series called What Should We Believe? And it's about the Apostles' Creed. It's looking at what the early church uh, adopted as their statement of what they believed about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about who they were. It was a amalgamation of scriptural teaching that's clear and concise and meant to help people, people like us be clear on what we believe. And as we started that, we, that we've been going through the Apostles' Creed a little bit by bit. And we started in the first week with, with this statement. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then we looked at last week, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this week we're going to look at the next part. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. For some of us, maybe we've come from traditions where creeds weren't used, so this is all new to us. Others of us, we've heard this before, it's familiar, and uh, you, know, you have no problems with it. But there's a good chance that there's a word that was in there that might have caused you to have some questions. There's a good chance that there's some statements that are in here that make you go, is that really what I believe? And what does that actually mean? And so I want to look at one particular statement and look at the importance of why we should believe what it says and why what it says is biblical. So let's take a moment to pray before we jump into that statement. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have inspired people throughout history to know you more and more. That from the people we read about in the Old Testament who strive to walk faithfully in their journey with you, to the people today who still are striving to walk faithfully. You have invited us to know you as Father, as Creator of the universe. And I pray this morning that we know you that way. Heavenly Father, I pray that we are open to what you have to teach us this morning through Scripture and through uh, the people long ago who followed you and have written down this creed. Help us to internalize what we believe, to make it... Uh, clear to our conscience what is true, what is scripture, what is you, and make it clear to us what is not. I pray that we open our hearts and minds now by the power of the Holy Spirit to embrace who you are, Jesus, more and more. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the statement I really want to focus on in that little part of the creed is this. He descended to hell. Now, if you are an average person, even if you don't have much church background, you should be asking some kind of questions around this. Like, why would Jesus go to hell? That seems like the opposite of the whole Jesus thing. So what is going on in the statement? Why is it there? Why does it matter? Well, there are lots of ways we can talk about it, but the other part I want to look at is, well, 
If this statement is there, what does that mean about what we believe about the life to come, about the afterlife? And is what we believe the same as what is taught in Scripture, the same as what the early church believed? Or is there something missing? Or is there something different about what we believe today? And maybe should there not be? Well, first I want to ask a question. For those of us who are familiar with Scripture, we know there are some wonderful people throughout the stories of the Old Testament. People who God inspired long ago, and because of them, we get to be here today, even if we don't realize it fully. And all those people died, almost all, from what we know. So what happened to them? What happened to Moses when he died? Think about it. Don't answer it, but think about it. What happened to Moses? Those of us who are familiar with Moses, we know, you know the story of the Ten Commandments, the, the Exodus account, the, the freeing of God's people. God used Moses in amazing ways to lead his people. So what happened when he died? Did he just go to heaven? Well, what happened to Deborah? Or uh, I think Deborah when she died. Some of you might not be as familiar with Deborah. Deborah is like the one good judge if you read the book of Judges. She was good, relatively speaking. So what happened to her when she died? What happened to David, King David, who is the one after God's own heart, the one who wrote a vast majority of the Psalms in Scripture, the one who also did some really horrible things in his life. So what happened to him? Where'd they go when they died? Did they just go and went to be with God? What happened to all the people in the Old Testament who died before Jesus? That's what this statement is looking to address. And it's actually a really important one. And it might not feel that important right now. You might be thinking, well, that's a long time ago. But it affects you right now as well. And one of the ways that we can try to understand this is to try and get a glimpse and understanding of what people in the first century, what people at the time of Jesus believed about the afterlife. What did they believe about what happened to you when you died? Did they believe you just went up to heaven if you were a good person, if you followed the law? Or did they believe something else? And some of the best indication of that is actually from a parable that Jesus tells. Those of us who are familiar with Scripture, we know that the parables are stories Jesus tells to illustrate a point. But those stories don't come from nowhere. They come from a place of cultural understanding. So a lot of his stories are about farmers, or about agriculture. So the people in his culture, his first century world, would have gone, yeah, that makes sense. I understand that. Well, he tells one story in Luke's Gospel that's different. It's about two people, a rich person and Lazarus, who's poor. And they both die. And they both die. What ends up happening is that Lazarus ends up going to be what's called Abraham's bosom. And the rich person goes to Hades. And Jesus says this in the story. He says, And the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. 
he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Is there any more text there? Yeah, I forgot to put it here. Uh, But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Is there anything else? I think it stops there. All right, thank you. So Jesus tells this story, and it's a parable, right? So it is a story. It's not like a uh, prescriptive thing, but it is a descriptive something. And it's a descriptive of partially what people understood in their world happened to you when you died. Those who were faithful, those who were good, went to be somewhere, and those who were not, those who were bad, went to be somewhere. And the words that get used in the Old Testament is Sheol, and in the New Testament is Hades. And at the time that the creed was written, they were translating the word Hades to hell. So if you read a King James Bible, uh, for those of you who use that, that version, uh, the same word, Hades, will be translated to hell. But more correctly, it means grave or place in between. So there's this understanding in Jesus' world that when you died, you didn't go right to be with God in that moment. But rather, there was an in-between space. So where did Moses end up? Where did Deborah end up? Where did David end up? They were in Hades. They were in between. They were waiting for rescue from there. Now, it wasn't necessarily what we think of hell. Like sometimes when we think of hell, we're thinking of fiery pit. You know, there's torment, all this. But Hades is this in-between waiting place where you're not with God yet. And there's something better to come. This is what happens in the story of Easter. Most of us, if we've come from certain traditions, we're familiar with Good Friday. We celebrate the death of Jesus on the cross. We celebrate and recognize that he died for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made whole. And then we jump to Easter, whereas Jesus rose again. And because he rose again, we have that opportunity for forgiveness and wholeness. He conquered death. Well, on Saturday, he was conquering death. The teaching of Scripture is that there is an in-between, and Jesus went to that in-between and didn't stay there. In fact, it's one of the central things that the early church wanted to teach people. In Acts chapter 2, one of the first sermons that Peter gives says this, He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was born, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, 
which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. That word there, those words there, that's not abandoned to the realm of the dead is Hades is hell in some translations. So Peter in his sermon is saying all these things. He's saying, look, David knew what was going to happen. He knew that there would be a Messiah. And David died. And David was buried. And his tomb is still there. But this Messiah, this one that David waited for, the one that we've waited for, death didn't hold him. He died but he wasn't stuck in that in-between. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalting to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. So David, Peter says right here, David didn't go straight to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So what did Peter say happened to David? He went in between. He was in Sheol or Hades or the grave. He didn't go straight to be with God. So this understanding that this early church had is that when people died, those people that we think highly of in the Old Testament, those people who died before Jesus, when they died, they went somewhere in between. And they waited for that Savior. And we believe the teaching of the church is that Jesus went to free those captives. That they could go to be with God because of Jesus. Not because of the goodness they had in them. Not because of the good things they did. Not even because of their faithfulness to the law. The law was not good enough to save them. Because nobody was good enough for the law. But Jesus saved them. 
the teaching that Jesus descended, went to the grave, died, and in that time rescued people is central, central to Christianity. He is the redeemer, not just of those who came after him, but those before as well. There is no one in Scripture who, if we use a term, is in heaven, who is in heaven for any other reason than Jesus. It is only through Jesus that people are saved, even people like Moses and David. It is only in Jesus that they have salvation. If it weren't true, if it weren't the case, then what they did on their own, their actions, their faithfulness, their works, would have been good enough. But the teaching of the Bible, of Scripture, of the church, is that Jesus is good enough. We're not. And we need Jesus to find wholeness, meaning, and salvation. So what does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, there's two things I want to say. One is that, and I've said this, Jesus is the only way to eternal life with God. There is no other way. So no one in the Old Testament did it on their own. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 11, starting at verse 13. And this is a a statement that the author of Hebrews makes about these wonderful people in Scripture who we look to as a great cloud of witnesses, the language talks about. Verse 13 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Then jump ahead to verse 39. These were all commanded, commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. All those people like David, like Moses, they are made perfect with us meaning it is through Jesus who makes us whole. That's what perfect is, that they are made whole. They didn't do it on their own. Nothing they did earned them their way with God. It is only Jesus that saves all throughout history. There's no other way. The second thing is that Jesus radically transforms our experience of death. Because of Jesus' death, descent into the grave, and resurrection, we don't experience death like people did before. In fact, we don't need to fear death because he conquers it. Romans 8, 38, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death was the great divide. It separated people from God. But in Jesus, no more. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus. Because of Jesus, there is the opportunity for wholeness and salvation. Because of Jesus, there is freedom. From the, for those who were faithful long ago but never got to see the fullness of God realized in Jesus. Athanasius wrote in the 4th century that, speaking of death, if you see children playing with a lion, 
Don't you know that the lion must be either dead or completely powerless? In the same way, when you see Christ's believers playing with death and despising it, there can be no doubt that death has been destroyed by Christ and that its corruption has been dissolved and brought to an end. Death has no power over us. Death will not divide us from God. If anything, there is hope for our eternity because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. So why does this matter? Why is this so important for the early church to know? Well, they needed to know that salvation is only found in Jesus through all eternity. And they needed to know that the things they feared had no power over them anymore. And so the early church needed to know this, and we need to know this. And we need to understand how it changes who we are. At the end of Peter's sermon where he explains this, the people, some of the people ask, well, what do we do? If this is true, what do we do? How do we respond to it? He said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Jesus defeated death for everyone, but we need to respond. It is a free gift of grace, and we respond through our repentance and our confession of Jesus as Lord. It is a gift from God that we don't have to fear what seems so frightening, and that through Jesus we can have life in all of its fullness now and all of eternity. If you want that life, if you want that hope, it's only found in Jesus. And I invite you to seek him for it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can call you Father. And that as a Father, you have great desire for us as your children. And that your desire is for us to experience you for eternity. And that eternity can start today with knowing embracing the truth that Jesus, you came and you died, you descended to the grave, and you rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, for the breaking of the bondage of sin, and for the healing of our souls that we can have life in all of its fullness. God, this is a good gift. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we come to know that gift to be true and live each day in that experience. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.